Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Italian sculpture of the 15th century in Florence and Tuscany departed from the elegant decorative style of the earlier Gothic period to reflect a greater admiration for and understanding of the strength and structure of the human body. In this respect, Renaissance sculptors emulated the ideals of the ancient Greeks and Romans when depicting contemporary or Christian subjects. Sculptors like Donatello, Desiderio de Settignano, Mino di Fiesoli, Bernardo and Antonio Rossellino, Luca and Andrea della Robbio, Jacopo della Quercia, and Verrocchio revived a classical interest in the human body depicted in full-length figures demonstrating naturalism and ease of movement. Relief sculptures explored new effects of light and atmosphere. Working in a variety of materials, including marble, bronze, wood, terracotta, and ceramic, 15th century Florentine sculptors mastered a range of sculptural processes, from carving to modeling and casting. Their sculpture served a variety of secular and religious purposes. Their work also became a model for the many talented Italian sculptors to follow, most notably the young Michelangelo. In this lecture, presented on October 22, 2019, at the National Gallery of Art, senior lecturer David Gareth explores the rich holdings of 15th century Florentine and Tuscan sculpture in the gallery's permanent collection. Welcome to the National Gallery. Uh, my name is David Gareth. I'm a senior lecturer here. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, 15th century Florentine and Tuscan sculpture that uh, resides in our uh, permanent collection. Uh, this uh, talk has really three threads that weave through it. So the first part of the talk, or at least the one aspect of the talk, deals with uh, obviously introducing to you our permanent collection of Florentine and Tuscan sculpture. We have a a wonderful collection of sculpture from Florence and Tuscany in this period. So I'll be certainly talking about a lot of our the works that are in our permanent collection. I'm also going to be weaving into the talk a discussion of some of the aspects in sculptures and sculptors that relate to the current Verrocchio exhibition. So this is not an overview of the Verrocchio exhibition, but it will be addressing some of the sculptures and ideas that are in the uh, Verrocchio exhibition, which runs through January 12th, uh, 2020, if you haven't had a chance to see it already. And then the third aspect of the talk that I think is relevant uh, is simply going to be to discuss materials and techniques of sculpture in the 15th century. How did sculptors make sculpture? What kinds of tools, what kinds of materials, and what were some of the basic uh, premises uh, that relate to that uh, to that topic. So all three of these ideas will be sort of woven uh, together as we go through. I'm going to start by talking uh, about um, materials, a little bit about materials and techniques. And certainly one of the most important techniques in the Renaissance in the 15th century uh, was carving. And one of the preferred materials was certainly marble. So just to mention a few ideas about marble carving in the 15th century, I'm showing you on the left the sculpture that's in our permanent collection. 
It's a sculpture that depicts David. There is a David, obviously, in the Verrocchio exhibition. This is a David by uh, Bernardo Rossellino or Antonio Rossellino. We're actually not sure of the attribution. At one time, it was actually given uh, to Donatello, but we, we no longer believe that's the case. Uh, the title of the David, is it has a, a title that goes beyond just David. It's the David of the Casa Martelli. Dates to probably 1461 to 1479. It has this reference to the Casa Martelli because we have records of this sculpture being in the possession of Luigi Dugolino Martelli uh, beginning in 1488. So that helps us to date the sculpture and deal with its provenance. So this is a marble carving. It is uh, actually not in the best of condition, which for teaching purposes is actually good because when one wants to try to understand a little bit about marble carving, it's always good to look at a block either that is unfinished or maybe one that has been worked and reworked as this one has so that you can actually see chisel marks approaches to the way that the sculptors dealt with removing the material. And all of that is evident in this particular sculpture. In the top of this uh, slide, the top center, you see Henry Moore, the British sculptor at work uh, carving a sculpture. Um, he's using the traditional tools that are still used today in the 21st century, a hammer and chisel. So it's a physical labor, kind of labor-intensive approach to sculpture. Uh, so that's Henry Moore on the top. And on the upper corner in the right is a Henry Moore sculpture that we have at the gallery. This photograph is when it was located down in our um, uh, concourse, but now it is actually up in the atrium of the East Building as you enter. It's to your left. This is a sculpture called Stone Memorial by Moore from 1961. Uh, it's carved from Ro Roman travertine, a type of stone very common in Rome. And then the just the photograph at the bottom right uh, is the marble quarry at Carrara in Italy. Um, marble comes from quarries like any other stone. And in the case of um, Italian sculpture, the best quarry and the best marble came from one, from one particular uh, quarry, and that was the quarry at Carrara. Marble country in Italy is located roughly between Florence and Pisa. Most of the important quarries are located there. There's Carrara, Pietra Santa, and other quarries. And these were the quarries that provided most of the, the marble for um, the works of art during the, the Italian Renaissance. Now, tools, as we just saw with Henry Moore, tools have not changed much through the, uh, through the years. And still to carve today, you use uh, hammers and chisels, obviously. So here's a hammer on the left. Hammers come in different sizes, shapes, weights, as do chisels. Chisels have, have different kinds of points. And you can see three of the points here. They can be uh, literally a pointy chisel, uh, or they can be straight-edged chisels. But the more important chisel probably, especially for the Renaissance, uh, is this uh, chisel that you see here. And that is uh, a, what we call a claw tooth chisel. It looks like it has a sort of a serrated uh, claw tooth edge. That's uh, a type of chisel that was particularly favored by a number of uh, Renaissance sculptors, most especially um, Michelangelo. Uh, Michelangelo doesn't fall within the period of this lecture. But in talking about approaches to carving marble, one has to deal with Michelangelo. In Italian, that type of claw tooth chisel is referred to as a gradina, 
G-R-A-D-I-N-A, a gradina. Uh, and it's the kind of chisel that would be used, and especially in the hands of Michelangelo, he would use that chisel to come back and forth over the marble to essentially, with a chisel, create what we would call in drawing cross-hatching, bringing these lines and edges back and forth across the, uh, the stone, which really begins to almost create the illusion of a skin uh, on the sculpture and certainly encourages a, the idea of showing depth and recession and three-dimensionality. <clears throat> Michelangelo is the master of this gradina, this particular type of chisel. What you're looking at here are ways that we use the chisel, and you have your block of stone. And the first chisel to be used would be the pointy chisel. You see that on the, on the left here. Um, but actually, the way you would use it first is not at this angle, as you see in this photograph. You would use the chisel at a right angle to the block. And what you would do is you would begin to punch a series of holes. Just make a series of holes with this chisel. And then you would turn the chisel to a 45 degree angle and you would begin to go through those holes to make essentially grooves, understand? And that's the first and fastest way that you would begin to remove stone. So the pointy chisel was really used first to, to, for the initial removal of stone. Once you're down to the shape that you're thinking about working on in, in more detail, you would turn to one of these other chisels, to a straight edge chisel, to a gradina, a, a cloth tooth chisel, etc. And then you'd begin to shape the stone more specifically, and that's what you see on the right in that photograph. That's a gradina that this uh, sculptor is using. Now, as I said, tools have not changed for centuries. And still, for many carvers, these are the preferred tools, the traditional hammer, chisels, various kinds of uh, abrasives to smooth the stone. But there has been a change, certainly, with technology, and that's the development of the pneumatic chisel or pneumatic tools. And these are chisels hooked up to an air hose. So this is comparable to the mechanic who changes your tire and uses that kind of a wrench to take off your lug nuts. It's, it's uh, attached to an air hose. So here the bit of the chisel is inserted into this sleeve and it's hooked up to air and that moves the chisel back and forth very, very rapidly. Now this is a technique that requires a certain, as all these techniques do, a certain experience and a certain um, getting used to because in this case, this is very powerful, this kind of tool and it can take away a lot of material very quickly, and maybe that's not what you are hoping to do initially. You'd like to work more slowly. In any case, for example, if you have a large rectangular block of marble and you're hoping to carve a human figure out of it, and you're not careful using pneumatic tools and you start getting into that block, and all of a sudden that chisel sort of gets away from you and starts to really take off a lot of material, you may have hoped to carve a human figure, and now you're going to be lucky if you can carve an ashtray uh, because all this rubble of stone that has now been ruined is sitting on the floor of your studio. So using uh, uh, pneumatic tools requires a certain experience. In places like Carrara, Pietra Santa, certainly pneumatic tools are used by these carvers who've been carving and these stonemasons who've been working in these quarries since they were basically children. Um, and they do use pneumatic tools to, to, to quickly get down to where they would like to be in terms of a rough shape. But then they definitely 
revert back to the traditional hammer and chisel and sort of physical uh, labor. So mentioning this is something to mention about carving in general. Carving is a subtractive method. You start with a block of something and you take material away to reveal, to reveal a form. Carving is, requires physical strength, physical labor, upper body strength. It's an aerobic activity, especially if you're using traditional hammers and chisels, which are heavy, require a certain strength. Not everybody likes that. It's subtractive. It requires physical labor. Because it's subtractive, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to correct the mistakes when you carve. So as I just said, if you accidentally lop off a piece of marble in the wrong place, well, you can't stick it back on. So you'll have to adjust your concept for what that work was going to be. These are all things that not everybody cares for as a sculptor. So you sculptors will choose a technique that fits their personality. And certainly carving, the subtractive nature of it, the physical labor, the inability to correct mistakes, which also means that when you carve, you need to have a very, very clear idea of what is coming out of that block. You cannot sort of think as you go along. It doesn't really work that way. So not everybody is on board, shall we say, with, with carving. This physical labor that is involved uh, throughout your life, if you start to carve when you're a young, young person, uh, is partly responsible for the long lives of sculptors who carve. Michelangelo lived to be 90. Henry Moore lived to be 90. They, Michelangelo was carving two or three days before he died. Um, there is another profession that has longevity in a similar way. Anybody know what that is? Very <laughs> right, right. It's the orchestra conductor uh, who does has aerobic activity all of his life by conducting, and he tends to his heart tends to stay pretty healthy. And so both uh, carvers of stone and orchestra conductors tend to lead very long lives. Now, approaching a block, if you're hoping to carve a human figure, there's been a tradition of how one approaches this that goes back centuries to the ancient Greeks and even before. And it's uh, sort of represented here. Uh, the figure that you see in the center is a Greek statue. It's a, a, what we call a kouros figure. Kouros means a young boy. And uh, it's uh, an early Greek figure. It's from the Archaic or the Attic period. Dates probably to around 590 BC. It's marble. And this is located today at the Met in New York. And what you're seeing in these diagrams are the ways that the sculptor would have approached the block from which this sculpture eventually emerges. So there's a, this uh, grid formula that you can see where you grid out the block on its four faces, front, back, left, right. And uh, then you proceed to carve, as you can see on the right. And you tend to circulate around the block as you're carving, front face, left, right, back. Uh, hoping eventually everything kind of meets in the middle uh, and you have your figure. Now, when you carve in this fashion with these very four distinct uh, faces, front, back, left, right, when the sculpture is finished, it does tend to present you with four very distinct views. So here is the Kuros figure from the front on the left, from the back in the center, and then that's the left profile. The right would be quite similar. When you carve in this fashion, the finished form very often does have very distinct faces, front, back, left, uh, right. Now, this is a traditional way of carving. Uh, not everybody followed this. And the one sculptor who 
moved away from this traditional way of, of carving was, in fact, Michelangelo. So when we look at Michelangelo blocks, especially those that are unfinished, we have a completely different approach, which, in fact, made this situation much more difficult. Um, this is an unfinished block on the left, these two slides on the left, two images, of St. Matthew. You see the frontal view clearly enough here, and then a kind of a side view where you can see the back of the block here. Uh, this is a sculpture that dates uh, to about 1503. It was part of a group that Michelangelo was hoping to carve uh, for Florence Cathedral. There were to be the 12 apostles. That whole commission fell through. It never was realized. He got as far as kind of blocking out Matthew here, and then he abandoned this block, in fact, because he was then called to Rome to work on the tomb for Pope Julius II. So fortunately, we're left with this unfinished block of St. Matthew, which then we can use to understand how Michelangelo approached carving. He did not follow that four-face approach of the Greeks that I just showed you. You can see clearly enough that he worked straight back from one face of the block. Um, so this is the frontal face, and he's working straight back. You can see this is untouched here, this part of the block, and he's just working straight back. That's very difficult. Um, and it's difficult in part because if you're working in that fashion, you have to be very clear in your mind about what is going to be projecting first. Because if you accidentally lop off a piece of marble in the wrong place, then that particular pose or movement you might not be able to achieve. For example, with Matthew, clearly this knee was going to be projecting. So Michelangelo had to know that from the start so that he didn't take away too much marble in this area, working straight back. There, Benvenuto Cellini writes about how Michelangelo carved, and he uh, used the, an analogy um, in this sort of straight back, one face approach, that if you had a figure, a let's say it's a mannequin or a sculpture, and it's underwater, parallel to the surface, and you slowly started to bring it up to the surface, right? and then it broke the water line, whatever was projecting first, you would see first, obviously. So that's uh, how Michelangelo carved, which makes it very, very difficult. Michelangelo had a confidence and an approach to carving that was, is, is unique, even to the extent of how he had his marble quarried. Most sculptors would order a block of stone from Carrara or someplace it would be shipped to Florence or wherever it was they were working. Michelangelo, more often than not, was in the quarry at Carrara, working with the stonemasons and looking at the mountain and then actually giving instructions about a piece of stone that he wanted to be cut and how he wanted it to be cut and then sent back for him to work on. Now, working back in the frontal face of the block is hard enough, but the sculpture on the far right is even more difficult. This is a sculpture that was destined to be a figure for the tomb of Pope Julius II. And Juli the initial conception that Michelangelo had for the tomb of Julius II is not what you see today when you visit the tomb at San Pietro in Vincoli, a church in Rome. But Julius's idea was to have his monumental tomb right in the crossing and under the dome of St. Peter's. Uh, and it was Michelangelo's conception was to be this tiered kind of a wedding cake freestanding monument, and it would be surrounded on every level by sculptures. He had anticipated carving 40 figures for one commission. Uh, 
there are some sculptors who don't carve 40 statues in a lifetime. Um, so obviously this commission starts off with great ambition, but it eventually sort of peters out for a variety of reasons. So once again, we have a number of unfinished sculpture um, stones for that commission. And that's what you see on the far right. This is a figure sometimes referred to as one of the prisoners or the slaves. In this case, because it was clearly meant to be a kind of caryatid figure, it was going to be having its hands holding up the level that was above it. Uh, sometimes it's called an atlas figure. But what's interesting here is how Michelangelo attacked this block. He didn't attack it from the frontal face. He knew where this sculpture was going to go. In his mind, it was going to go on the corner of one of these levels, on a corner. And in fact, what he wanted was the legs of the figure to sort of wrap around the two faces of, the, of that level to bring us around the sculpture. But because he knew it was going to be on a corner, he knew that we would be seeing it from the at the corner from down below. So in this case, he doesn't carve the, this block back from the face. He carves it back from the corner. So he's carving it back this way. That's very, very difficult. He has the point of the block coming to his face, which means he has two descending or recessive planes that he has to then manipulate to create a figure that's going to fit where he wants it. So this is making things even more difficult than they had to be. This figure dates to about 1530. So carving, subtractive, difficult to correct mistakes, the material that you're choosing is resistant to being carved, stone, granite. So it requires physical labor, etc. It's not, again, for everybody. You can carve materials that aren't as resistant as um, stone or marble, for example, wood. So I'm showing you two sculptures we have in our collection. They're a little bit earlier than the period I'm dealing with. These are from Pisa, <clears throat> probably the 14th century, so they're the 1300s. 1325, roughly. They would go together. One's the archangel Gabriel on the left, and the other is the Virgin Annunciate on the right. So they were meant to be seen as a pair. They would have been, they were in fact probably carved after a pair of marble statues that had originally been carved and, and placed in the church in Pisa, the church of Santa Catarina. So they would have been at the near the altar as you approached, you would have seen this Annunciation scene as you walked by. This is not stone, it's not granite, it's not marble. These are wooden carvings. So wood, obviously, is a little bit easier. You're still using the same kinds of tools, chisels, hammers, rasps, various kinds of abrasives to smooth it out. But at least it's a little less laborious. One of the things you see in this, these two sculptures is that they are polychromed. They're, they're painted. Some of the original paint or polychrome still exists. And not only were they polychromed using paint, but parts of them were gilded with gold. So there are some traces of that on these sculptures still. You very often find traces of polychrome or gilding inside drapery folds where it could have been protected from the elements over, uh, over time. One problem with wood is that it is relatively soft and it's uh, susceptible to various effects, for example, of weathering. If you're going to place a sculpture outdoors, wood might not be the best choice. These were sculptures meant to be seen inside a church. Um, even marble is soft, as a, relatively speaking, as a stone. And if it's placed outside too long over time, it will certainly suffer as a result of weathering. 
In any case, uh, wooden sculpture tends to work best inside where it can be protected. If it's polychromed, a problem with wood is what you can sort of see down here at the base of these sculptures. And if you look closely, you go to the galleries and look closely, you'll see lots of little holes in, this, uh, in these figures. And those are essentially wormholes. Um, in other words, infestation, parasites can attack a wooden sculpture and that causes problems. These sculptures were painted, but not directly on the wood. Once the sculpture was finished in wood, it would have been covered in a layer of gesso, which is a kind of a plaster. And it would be, the paint would then be applied to the gesso. Gesso would have been used in painting panel paintings. So if the gesso is just a surface that's easier to apply the paint to. So they would be wood covered with this plaster and then painted and, and uh, polychromed and gilded. So the, this is carving, resistant, hard, etc. There are wooden sculptures in the Verrocchio exhibition. Um, there certainly are marbles uh, that you'll see. Maybe you don't like carving. Maybe it's just too laborious, too strenuous. Uh, you'd rather have something that's a little easier and less fraught with potential mistakes. So then for you, modeling is probably the way to go. And modeling is simply taking a soft material now, not a hard material. It's not wood, it's not granite, it's not marble. It's a soft material, wax, clay, uh, plasticine. And you just shape it. And you might work over an armature to give it some support if it's a figure. Fundamentally, you don't need any tools now. Here you see in the upper left the figure, uh, an artist just using his fingers, his hands, to manipulate, ma manipulate clay. If you want to use some tools, uh, then in this photograph you see the sculptor using little wire loops, or you can use these little spatulas or palette knives if you, if you wish to do so. But it's really not necessary. Some sculptors who like modeling, and the classic example in the 19th century is uh, Rodin, the French sculptor, he liked the very pure tactility of modeling, just using his fingers and his thumbs, his hands. He almost never used a tool. When you look at a Rodin sculpture, the finished bronze, and you'll see a figure, maybe the figure has a beard or whatever, and you'll look to see how that was shaped, and you might see a place where Rodin literally just took his thumb and pushed it into the clay to make that indentation. And in the finished bronze, you will be able to see his fingerprint. He would have left his fingerprint in the clay, and that would have come through in the casting. So modeling is immediate. It's tactile. Now, unlike carving, which is subtractive, modeling is additive. You start with a little piece of clay. You keep building it up. Eventually, you have a figure. Carving requires a very clear idea of what you're doing. You really can't correct mistakes. Modeling is just the opposite. I build something up, I decide I don't really like it that way, I break it down and I start again, I can do this over and over again. Let's say I'm carving a mouth, I'm carving a mouth in marble of a bust, and I realize, gee, I made the mouth, it was, I would have liked to have made it more closed or more open. Well, you're kind of stuck. If you're modeling a face or a head, as you see here in this photograph, and you... Um, fashion the mouth and you realize, yeah, I'd like that to be more open, then all you do is you stick your fingers in the clay and push down the, the chin and there you go, it's more open. So that, that attracts artists who like to think as they go along, work more slowly, be able to correct mistakes, etc. So then modeling is the preferred technique. Now, the drawback of modeling is durability. 
if you were to just model a form in clay and you just let it dry, that would be very, very fragile. And certainly if you dropped it or hit it or something, it would, it would shatter. So the thing that almost always goes along with modeling is turning it into something else, firing it to make a, what we call a terracotta, a baked clay. Terra means earth in Italian, cotta, baked, terracotta. So what you would do is to take your clay and then fire it in a kiln and, um, and bake it. That's what you see in the upper right. This is one of the Verrocchio works that's in the exhibition. It's the portrait of Giuliano de' Medici. This is a terracotta. It does have some traces of polychrome, but this is essentially baked clay. Um, and it's un, it has some traces of polychrome, but basically what you're looking at here in that color is the natural color of the, of the clay. So this is the one thing that could give a modeled work in clay <clears throat> a little bit more durability. Coming back to the idea of what if I don't bake it at all? I don't turn it into a terracotta and I just let it dry. <clears throat> what would it look like and how would that be? That's very rare in the history of art to have a work that has survived as an unbaked clay, which we would call terra cruda, terra earth cruda, unbaked. But believe it or not, <clears throat> one of the rarest examples in the world is here at the National Gallery and it is in the Verrocchio exhibition, and it is by Verrocchio. <clears throat> it's this little guy. This is the puto poised on a globe from 1480. This is by Verrocchio. It's in the exhibition, but it belongs to our permanent collection. And it, is, uh, it dates to around 1480. It is unbaked clay, <clears throat> terra cruda, which means this is so fragile and so delicate and it's always exhibited in a vitrine. We normally exhibit this work downstairs in our sculpture galleries, but for this exhibition, we had to move it upstairs for the Verrocchio exhibition, and our preparators and handlers were having a heart attack, uh, having to move this thing, put it on an elevator, take it from one level to another level. I, I mean, they had to do it inch by inch uh, because it's, it's very fragile. This is very, very rare the survival of an unbaked clay, a terra cruda. This sculpture is in some ways one of the stars of the Verrocchio exhibition. Um, it probably served as a model for a bronze fountain figure. And in the exhibition, we do have a fountain figure that kind of goes along with this that I'll show you in a second. <clears throat> it's a model, it stands on this globe, which would have been probably fixed to the center of a fountain and from what we can figure out, water probably spouted out of its mouth. And he probably was holding in his hand a kind of pinwheel. That's a possibility. So that when the water hit the pinwheel, the pinwheel sort of went around. We even think it's possible that the sculpture itself rotated, that it was in the, on the fountain, but that it actually would rotate. So this was a figure that would have been plumbed. It would have had to have water coming up through the inside to spout out of the mouth and might very well have had some kind of mechani uh, mechanism that allowed it uh, to uh, rotate. But when you look at this figure, if you look at those details on the right, <clears throat> you know, this is, a, this is an infant with these wonderfully pudgy 
delectable <laughs> kind of uh, squishy um, uh, fleshy um, arms and legs and through the clay that all comes through here uh, beautifully in the exhibition we have our figure which is the one on the left um, juxtaposed to the Verrocchio that's in the exhibition which is the bronze statue in the center so this is a puto with a dolphin from 1465. This comes to us from Florence, from the Palazzo Vecchio. Um, so here's the way these two things would have worked. Probably in the case of the puto with the dolphin, the water spouted out of the mouth of the dolphin. It would have, it, again, we know this would have sat on, the, uh, on a fountain. Originally, it was meant for a fountain at the Villa Medici, but then it was transferred to a fountain in the courtyard of the Palazzo Vecchio, which is today where you see it, the copy. Today, the co when you go to the Palazzo Vecchio in the courtyard, there's the copy of this figure on the fountain. And then the real one is in the museum, and now the real one is temporarily here uh, in, uh, in Washington. I'm just showing it to you as well with the, our fountain figure on the far right, which is in our rotunda, in the fountain in our rotunda, which is after John Bologna, so it's much later. In fact, this is even later than John Bologna. It was probably cast in the 18th century, maybe even in the 19th century, um, of Mercury. But this idea of these uplifted, diagonal sort of figures, especially figures that look like and were meant to be seen all the way around. So in a fountain, you're encouraged to go around the fountain. And certainly our Puto figure and the Puto with the dolphin were meant to be seen from all angles. And in fact, the Verrocchio Puto with the dolphin is among the first, if not the first Renaissance sculptures that was created to be seen equally as beautiful from all different sides. This is normally not a Renaissance idea. The Renaissance stress tends to stress the primary viewpoint. When we get to the Baroque and the 17th century, this idea of things moving around, that's, a, that's when it really occurs. But here, Verrocchio is ahead of of the, of the curve, you might say. But let me show you what our figure would look like if you kind of rotated around it. So here you see it in all of its different viewpoints. And they're equal, they're, each one is interesting, and each one is beautiful. And you learn something in each with each pose. Now you can turn clay into a terracotta by firing it in a kiln. <clears throat> but by far and away, what modeling tends to be linked to in the history of art is casting. Uh, so not firing something in a kiln, but casting it into a metal, <clears throat> which means you're using the original clay or the original wax as a model. That's going to be the model from which you make a mold. And then you pour molten bronze into this mold and you come up with a figure. Now, there are different ways I'm, for the sake of time, <laughs> I can't go into great detail about all the different ways of, of casting. There's sand casting, but for the Renaissance, the most important technique of casting was called lost wax casting. And that works somewhat contrary to what we expect with casting. One of the advantages of casting, depending on the technique, let's say it's sand casting, is that you can reuse your molds which means you could replicate, you could cast more than one version of a sculpture. So that's why today when you see Rodin, there's a thinker in Cleveland, there's a thinker in London, there's a thinker in New York, there's a thinker in DC, there's a, you know, there's a thinker everywhere. Uh, and 
burgers of Calais or Balzac or whatever, uh, because those original molds were still in use and you could replicate. Um, with lost wax, which is the finest way of casting, the adhesion between the clay, the wax, the bronze, the molten bronze is so tight that you end up losing your, your mold. You have to, in fact, you have to break it out to reveal the, the bronze. So in the Renaissance, the quality of casting is of the highest level, especially for the most important works that could be funded by families like the Medici, where money wasn't an object. So for example, the Verrocchio's David is a lost wax cast. The Puto with the dolphin is a lost wax cast. So that's a little bit different. But here you see a, somebody pouring molten bronze here into a cast. I'm not sure what they're making. It might be a little bust. Who knows? Um, eventually, that's broken out. The cast, the, the mold is broken out. Um, and then the last thing to be, once that comes, once the bronze comes out of the cast, out of the, the mold, it's going to be covered with all this gunk uh, that has adhered. So the next step is to uh, what's called chase the bronze. It's called chasing, which just means you clean it. You get a little brush, toothbrush, whatever, and you clean off all of that extraneous material, especially if it's a figure that has a beard or curly hair. You want to get all of that material out. And then the last thing to be done is what this gentleman is doing on the far right is to apply a patina. And a patina is a kind of chemical solution the recipe will vary from artist to artist. Some Rodin took his recipe to his grave with him for his patina. Uh, but it's a chemical solution that you brush on. But while you're brushing it on, you have to be heating the bronze. Usually today you would heat it with a propane torch like this guy's doing. Uh, the heat opens up the pores of the bronze. The solution goes on to the bronze, goes into the bronze. And what happens is a chemical reaction that discolors the bronze depending on your patina formula. It could be a dark black, it could be a chocolatey brown, it could be a green, it could be a gold. You know the Henry Moore sculpture in front of the East Building that's got this beautiful golden patina. This is a sculpture in our collection here in the center by Lodovico Lombardo. It's the Emperor Hadrian from about 1550. This is almost a black, dark, dark brown, black uh, patina. So patinas will vary depending on the, the solution. But what the key is here is that now, once you've cast something into a metal, you don't have to cast bronze. You could cast iron. You could cast aluminum. But bronze, because of its ability to be heated and to take the shape of things, was the preferred metal. Bronze is expensive. So very often, a sculptor would have to have a patron. He would present perhaps a, mar a, a copy or a model in clay or wax or whatever. And then if that were approved, somebody would have to foot the bill <laughs> to get the bronze to make, especially if it's a life-size equestrian statue or something like that. So bronze, gives, bronze casting gives you tremendous detail. Everything you did with, when you were manipulating that clay will come through, but it gives you durability. They can take a lot of abuse. They're good to be put outside, etc. Now, there's yet another technique that was popular in the Renaissance, um, and it's terracotta, which we've already talked about. But normally, terracotta, you just fire the clay, and it, it's a natural color. It's just the brown. You don't add anything to the terracotta. 
Well, in the Renaissance, especially in the hands of one particular family, the Della Robbia family, we did an exhibition on the Della Robbia in 2017, uh, they developed glazed terracotta, where they would apply a glaze and fire the work again so that it would come out, depending on the glazes, which could have various colors, blue, green, or in this case on the left, it's just a white glaze, um, you have this glazed terracotta. So it's shiny. Glazed terracotta has more strength than a regular terracotta. It can be put outside. Uh, it, it will be pretty impervious to weather, etc. So on the left is a life-size uh, sculpture by Luca della Robbia. This is not in our collection. I wish it were. It's called The Visitation, when Mary visits and Elizabeth meet from 1445. It's glazed terracotta. This came to us. This was loaned to us for the exhibition we did in 2017. It's probably never going to leave Italy again. It's in a church in um, Pistoia. Uh, on the right is a, a diagram that comes from a very important book in the 16th century, the Tre Libri su l'arte ceramica, the three books on ceramic art, that... Um, this dates to 1556, that actually shows us the size of a kiln, which means you could get life-size figures inside this kiln, and it's being fired here, and you see there are lots of things that had to be dealt with. This, would, could, blow, this could blow up and explode and kill people, etc., and things were learned from trial and error. Um, here's the kiln master here. He's got a, an hourglass, so he's timing how much heat and how long the heat will be on the kiln. The kiln, the fire has to be managed if it gets too hot too quickly. Because these things could explode, you tended to do this near a well <laughs> where you had access to water in case there was a fire or an explosion. So this was learned through trial and error, and the Della family were the great exponents of glazed terracotta. We'll come back to them in a second. Maybe you don't want to glazed terracotta. You don't want to just leave it terracotta. You don't want to just bring it, make the clay, fire it, and leave it that way. Nor do you want to glaze it. You don't want to do that. Maybe the simplest thing you want to do is just paint it. So here's painted terracotta. And um, these are from our collection. The one on the left is in the exhibition. So on the left, we have the portrait of Lorenzo de' Medici from probably 1513. I'm going to have much more to say about that sculpture in a second. And then the sculpture on the right is a, a portrayal of St. John the Baptist. It's Florentine. We're not sure who did it, 15th century. It's probably after a model by Desiderio da Settignano. So here the clay was fashioned. It was fired to become a natural terracotta, and then it was just painted. So this is simple painted terracotta. Color was very important in the Renaissance. People believed and felt, especially in the medieval and Renaissance periods, that it gave a work a greater naturalism, a greater vitality. So that's simple enough. Here's another work in the exhibition on the left, and I'm using it as an example of yet another way of approaching sculpture, which is a marble relief. So here, maybe you don't want to carve a full freestanding figure, but you just want to carve a relief, something that can go on a wall, um, like a plaque, so to speak. So this is the work, a work on the left that's in the exhibition. It comes from, it's probably Andrea Del Verrocchio and an assistant, 
Um, it's a portrayal of Alexander the Great from 1483, and then a work that's not in the exhibition, but it's one of our most important marble reliefs at the National Gallery. It's the one on the right by Desiderio da Settignano, and this is St. Jerome in the Desert from 1461. So here, clearly, relief is that you start with now a slab of marble, could be various thickness, and you begin to just carve into that slab, and depending on how deeply you carve or how shallow, you'll have a relief that will have different um, aspects to it as these two do. The relief on the left we would definitely call high relief. It is carved so deeply that the form looks almost like you could pull it right off the plaque that's so three-dimensional. Whereas the relief on the right is just the opposite. It's very low relief. The term in the Renaissance for this low relief developed, uh, well, it's not developed by Desiderio, it's developed by Donatello, is called rilievo schiacciato. Schiacciare in Italian means to mush something, to sort of press it down. Um, so schiacciato relief in the Renaissance is developed by Donatello. And Donatello creates these reliefs that are comparable to what you see here on the right, where you have the most subtle differentiation of foreground, middle ground, background, Things that are in the background seem almost to just be delicately scratched into the surface. There's a figure back here running away from a lion. It's just barely scratched. So this schiacciato relief is a, is a revolution in relief carving developed by Donatello. And then all of the people who follow Donatello, Desiderio, the Rossellino, uh, Verrocchio, they all adopt this technique as well. But it really begins with Donatello. Donatello looms over the 15th century. He is the most important sculptor in the first half of the 15th century. Verrocchio is the most important in the second half. But without Donatello, there wouldn't have been Verrocchio. So Donatello is in spirit. When you go to the exhibition, there's not a work in that exhibition by Donatello. And yet his spirit is everywhere <laughs> hovering over that exhibition. That's how important he was. Now you can have a bronze relief, same idea. This time you'll start with a piece of clay or wax, a little slab, depending on what it is you're making. And now you'll just, that's easy because you don't even have to carve. You can just scratch right into the clay or in the wax. And then you make a mold from that and then you cast the bronze. So here in the center is a bronze relief by Donatello. This is in our permanent collection, St. Jerome. It's from the mid-15th century. It's a very dark brown, almost black kind of patina. And then a metal on the left and right, which is in fact the same metal, just two sides of the same metal. And this is by a Florentine um, sculptor famous for his medals, uh, whose name was Bertoldo di Giovanni. And this is arguably his most famous creation. It uh, shows on one side here on the left the figure of Lorenzo de' Medici. And then on the other side, if you flip the medal over, it shows uh, his brother, Giuliano. This medal dates to 1478. This medal is sometimes referred to as the Pazzi Conspiracy Medal because this medal was created after the attempt on the life of Lorenzo and Giuliano when, they, when the Pazzi family and other conspirators attempted to drive the Medici out of Florence. And the simplest way to do that was to assassinate the two brothers. 
and Giuliano was assassinated and stabbed 19 times uh, on the altar in the church. The, the, the Potsies decided the best time to get these guys would be on Easter Sunday when they knew they would be together in the church celebrating Easter service. They had tried to kill them earlier, but they were never together at the same time. So here in this medal, here is Giuliano being stabbed uh, in the lower right-hand part. Giuliano died, obviously, but his brother Lorenzo survived. He was able to run into the sacristy and save himself. So the medal had a dual purpose. It commemorated the death of Giuliano, and then the other side celebrated the survival of his brother Lorenzo. I'm going to come back to talk about the Pazzi conspiracy in relationship to another sculpture that we have in a second. So this is bronze relief. This medal by Bertoldo is very important. But if you were to, I think, take a poll among sculpture historians of the Renaissance in terms of our collection, what's the most important sculpture that may be in the collection? The work that would get a lot of votes, maybe the most number of votes, would actually be another medal that we have. And it's this one on the right. This is a very significant work. It is by Leon Battista Alberti, one of the great humanist artists, polymaths. It's his self-portrait from 1435. This came through us through Mr. Crest, the Crest Collection. Uh, this is about six inches, maybe, uh, uh, high. And uh, this is so important. First of all, Alberti in the 15th century is the equivalent of Leonardo in the 16th century. Alberti is this incredible mind. He is interested and knowledgeable about everything, about architecture, painting, sculpture, mathematics, uh, all aspects of humanism. His interests are, are so broad, much like Leonardo. Uh, he writes some of the most important treatises we have in the Renaissance on painting, sculpture, and architecture that still are read uh, today. So this is his self-portrait. He created this image of himself. And of course, because he was a humanist and because the Renaissance in Italy was a rebirth and a rediscovery of things classical, when Alberti depicts himself, he is thinking about classical prototypes. Certainly the simplest prototype would be coins, Roman coins that always show the profile of the emperor on the coin. But even more than coins is something like what you're looking at here on the left. This is a cameo. It's classical. It's Roman. This is one of the most beautiful works from antiquity. It's the so-called Blacus cameo, B-L-A-C-A-S, Blacus. It uh, depicts the Emperor Augustus in profile. It's carved from sardonyx. And the sardonyx has alternating layers, as you carve down through it, of brown and caramel and white. So it's just this gorgeous work. Uh, it depicts Augustus. We're not sure. Augustus dies in 14 AD. This probably dates a little bit later, maybe 20 AD. Um, it's today in the British Museum. This is the kind of work Alberti was thinking about. He was thinking about Roman coins, Roman cameos. And he depicts himself in profile with a classical hairdo, these tight curls. He's got this aquiline classical profile. 
His initials are on the far right over here. But then the interesting element, other interesting element is what's here. And this is his personal emblem. And that emblem depicts a winged eye, uh, an eye that, an eyeball that has wings. And much has been written and discussed about his emblem, the winged eye kind of hovering in this field. It's his emblem, and it, has, it could have all kinds of different connotations. Certainly it could be, from the religious point of view, it could be the all-seeing eye of God. That's a possibility. But I think it relates more to what was important for Alberti and what would be important later for Leonardo, and that is the primacy of the eye for a humanist. For a humanist, we're now being taught to look at things, to understand things, to use your eye, get, look beyond the appearance of things, to try to get to the heart of what nature is, etc. So I think it really relates to this idea of the primacy of the eye for human inquiry. It could relate as well to Egyptian hieroglyphics, all these things. This emblem was well known. We have another medal that depicts Alberti. It's not a self-portrait. This is by a Florentine, well, actually, it's from Verona, a sculptor named Matteo de Pasti. It's about, uh, it, it's created around 1446, and it depicts Alberti on one side, as you can see here on the left. That's a more traditional Renaissance hairdo, not the Roman kind of style. But on the other side of the medal, uh, Matteo de Pasti shows that emblem again, right in the center, the winged eyeball which he knows is the emblem of, Le of um, uh, Leon Battista Alberti. Now, I want to talk a little, I want to come back to the sculpture that I just made reference to as a painted terracotta. This is in the Verrocchio exhibition, and it's a very, very important, one of our most important sculptures. Uh, it's in the Verrocchio exhibition because it's probably by, after a model by Verrocchio, uh, but that model originally was in wax created by another artist named Orsino Benintendi. I'm going to try to explain all this in a second. But this is a work that went through in the decade of the 90s and then up until 2006, I think, 2004 to 2006. Our conservators uh, and curators subjected this work to a, a major investigation, investigation and conservation, which changed the way we perceive it. There's a magazine we publish at the gallery, a journal called Facture that you see on the right. That, in fact, was the inaugural issue that you're looking at on the right. And the, what I'm going to be giving you, the information I'm going to be giving you about this restoration and conservation is from the article written that you see cited on the top of that slide by the two conservators and our curator who were involved in this. That's Michael Bellman, Allison Lux, Shelley Sturman. And the title of the article was A Renaissance of Color, The Conservation of Lorenzo the Magnificent. This was the initial inaugural volume of Facture. Um, we're up to volume three, I think now, or four maybe is coming out. This is available in the bookstore if you'd like to have it. This inaugural issue was devoted solely to works from the Renaissance that are in our collection. So what was done uh, in the conservation of this work was to essentially discover or rediscover the fact that originally this work had been painted. And that's, so here's how you see it today in the Verrocchio exhibition. This is not how the work came to us when it originally entered the gallery's collection. It was a kind of a dark, gunky, chocolatey brown 
which were essentially layers of varnish through the centuries, and dirt. And there had always been the idea, the, the, the thought that probably underneath all those varnishes and dirt layers, this sculpture had been, been polychromed or had been uh, painted. Now, one of the first things to do, sometimes you have to start with the obvious, is this Lorenzo de' Medici. Maybe it's not Lorenzo. Uh, so you, you want to sort of make sure you're looking at the right guy. So we already had the Medici medallion here, the Pazzi conspiracy medallion. And here you see uh, Lorenzo in profile. And then here is another medal that we have by Niccolo Fiorentino of, that depicts Lorenzo the Magnificent from about 10 years after the Pazzi conspiracy medal. He looks a little more kind of stressed out, shall we say, um, on the right. You simply look at contemporary paintings, etc. For example, here is the great fresco by Ghirlandaio on the left that is in the uh, Sassetti Chapel in the church of Santa Trinita in Florence. This cycle of frescoes deals with the life of St. Francis. And here we have Francis receiving the order from Pope Honorius. This is when his Franciscan order is approved by the Pope. And you see that event taking place here. Here's Francis, the Pope. But then you see these two groups of individuals on either side who clearly don't seem to be part of the legend of St. Francis. And of course, they're all contemporary Florentines that Ghirlandaio has just put into the painting for various reasons. The most important group is this group on the right. Uh, and we can identify all three of those. Well, actually, there are four figures. There is a man named Antonio di Puccio Pucci. He was Sassetti's brother-in-law. But it's the next guy with the black hair here that you see here. And that is Lorenzo de' Medici, who was Sassetti's employer. Sassetti worked for the Medici Bank. And then there's Francesco Sassetti as the next guy. And then his youngest son, Federico, is down here, the little boy. So there's another image of um, Lorenzo, contemporary. Really, we don't need any of those things in some ways because we have Lorenzo's uh, death mask. And here it is. This is a cast of the, this is the dead mask, the cast of the dead mask of Lorenzo from 1492, the year he's killed. And it's probably within hours of his death. He dies on April 8th, 1492. This is today in a museum in Florence, the Museo degli Argenti, and it is a stucco, obviously, plaster, that's mounted onto a poplar uh, panel. So here we have a very good idea of what Lorenzo looked like, you know, right down to the stubble of his beard, at least at the time of his death. When you compare our guy to the death mask, it's, it seems pretty persuasive uh, that it is Lorenzo. Uh, but he, let's say you're really a hard case. Uh, and even this doesn't convince you. Uh, in 2012, there was a research project at the University of California at Riverside. It was a group of electrical engineers and art historians who collaborated on developing a face recognition software. And the way they tested their software was to use works of art portraits and to try to see by matching portraits together to see if that they could secure identifications. They chose our sculpture uh, on the left as one of their 
um, trial sort of runs, and they compared it to the death mask. So they did this comparison using their software um, recognition, and it came out like a dead hit. <laughs> so I think we're safe in assuming that's Lorenzo. Um, Now, again, here's the sculpture the way it looks today, beautiful in its kind of polychrome. Uh, Lorenzo wears a traditional Florentine um, dress, uh, garb, and it uh, consists of this headdress with these other uh, elements to it. And I'm now comparing our Lorenzo to a sculpture that's at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. It uh, probably dates to around 1500. It's a we think it's a portrait of a member of the Caponi family. The Caponi family was one of the great illustrious Florentine families like the Medici. Traced this history way back in the history of the city. Um, we think this might be Nic Niccolo Caponi, but we're not, we're not sure. In any case, what's irrelevant here is what he's wearing. This is the traditional sort of garb of the Florentines. It, Lorenzo did not like ostentation. He had learned from his grandfather. His grandfather was Cosimo de' Medici, and Cosimo had told his grandchildren, as well as his son, Piero, don't put on a big show. <laughs> don't flaunt your wealth. Be discreet. Be humble. And that these were things Cosimo lived by. And then his son, Piero, and then his grandchildren, Giuliano and Lorenzo, sort of inherited that. So Lorenzo always shows himself as a man of the people wearing this traditional garb. This garb is called, uh, this headdress is called a cappuccio. A cappuccio. <clears throat> Those of you who like your coffee, yes, cappuccino, right? But that actually refers to the garb of Dominic of uh, capuchin monks who have a, a habit that is brown and white. So the cappuccino is white on the top and brown on the bottom, right? So that's a little bit of trivia. Um, so this is a cappuccio. Which is the overall, uh, the over oh sorry, the uh, overall headdress, but the capuccio then has separate parts. It has this padded ring, uh, and that's called a mazzocchio, a mazzocchio, and then it has this little hood that kind of descends here, that's attached to the mazzocchio, and that's called a foggia, foggia, and then there's this descending strip of fabric here. Uh, that comes off of the headdress. That's called a becchetto. A becchetto. This is the normal way it looks on the right. Um, the mazzocchio is this ring. It's a fabric ring that then supports the uh, the foggia, and then the becchetto descends. You'll notice in our figure, uh, we're missing this. We're missing the becchetto, and we have this extra stuff going on here. This extra sort of scarf-like motif. So um, I'll come back to that now in a second. Let's just move on. So here is the work today when you see it in the uh, exhibition. I just brought back the medals by Bertoldo. Now, what we think, what our conservators and art historians and, and curators, sort of the conclusion, we know this probably dates back in some way to the Pazzi conspiracy. That's certainly the, the case with the medal on the right. 1478 is this the attempt on the lives of Lorenzo and Giuliano. Giuliano is killed, but Lorenzo survives. Lorenzo survives by being able to, he's wounded, he's bleeding, but
but he's able to run into the sacristy, and there's a little sort of a window in the sacristy, and he's able to kind of prop himself up to show his followers that he hasn't been killed, and that's important. He's still alive. So now the Medici know that they can exact this retribution. Their, their leader is still alive. But he's wounded, etc. So what began to happen in the wake of the Pazzi conspiracy was the creation of works meant to, on the one hand, commemorate the death of Giuliano, like one side of this medal, but then to celebrate the survival of Lorenzo. And what you had going up in Florentine churches and even in a church in Assisi, these things had to be created quickly. So what, they were, what we had were images of Lorenzo, sometimes full-scale, full-length figures made in wax so they could be made very quickly and then put up in a church as a thank offering to God for his survival. And the interesting thing is that we know that many of these wax figures were actually dressed in the, some of them were actually dressed in the bloody clothes that Lorenzo had been wearing when this attempt was made on his life to give them added kinds of realism. So what seems to be the case with our figure is that it was probably created, there was probably a wax sculpture just like this that was made right in the wake of the Pazzi conspiracy. Later it was translated into a terracotta, but probably much later, we think maybe around 1513. And the original wax that was created by this family that were famous for these wax works, they're called the Benintendi family, that original wax was probably based on a model created by Verrocchio. Verrocchio worked with these people very often to create an original that they would translate into a wax. So that's what we think is the full story here. Now, as far as this extra sort of scarf or fabric that descends, it's been postulated that perhaps this relates to a description, Vasari's description, actually, of what happens to Lorenzo, that he, in Vasari's description, he says, quote, that Lorenzo had, quote, been wounded in the throat and bandaged up. Maybe this extra part of the whole on of the whole ensemble is some reference to that in any case here is the figure as it was undergoing conservation here at the gallery so it took about 10 years of research throughout the decade of the 90s just to do the historical research and to research the condition and all of that before anything was even done and then the treatment started around 2004 so here's a cross-section of the tunic the paint and it's important because you can see the layer of dirt here. And you don't want to take that off because you, you don't want to be, you don't want to take away original paint. So you know anything above that layer of dirt is over paint that you can remove. But also by doing the analysis, it actually gives you the chemical makeup of the pigments so that you can, if you're going to do some in-painting, which was done, you, you know what the original pigments were, and that you see here. And then here you see the work in the lab, kind of in the process. Here's the way it looked when we originally got the work on the far left. This is the way most of us grew up with this work at the National Gallery before 2003, 2004. Uh, this is the way it's reproduced in books, if you have old books and magazines. 
this is this kind of gunky, chocolatey, and this was only, this was basically dirt and varnish that we removed little by little. Here's the work half clean and still dirty. And then there it is clean. Now, when you have that kind of appearance of color, sometimes that freaks everybody out. Um, when you get down there and you realize this has this color, some people, well, maybe is that correct? Yeah. And we have a painting by Bronzino on the right, on Angelo Bronzino, that's much later. It's from 1555. It's a portrait of Lorenzo de' Medici. And this was perfect because it gave credence to the idea that the colors that were emerging in the sculpture were correct, that originally it was polychrome. It had this red and blue kind of intonation. And this is a portrait that was part of a Bronzino series called the Medici Ancestor series. And what we think is that, in fact, Bronzino based his painting on the sculpture. So that gave further evidence and credence to the colors that we found, that were found by the conservators. So here you see the sculpture before treatment on the far left, uh, after treatment in the middle. There was one other thing that I'm not going to go into, but this little part was found to not be original to the work it was removed. So this little peak here is no longer in the sculpture. <clears throat> but then what you have on the right is a computer-generated image. Mm -hmm. This is an image the conservators generated, our, our visual arts period, people, um, to show what the sculpture probably looked like in its original shape, reinserting this part, which is missing here. And right down to the white that would have been in the doublet here in the tunic, the little furry part. So this is before cleaning, the way it looks today, and what we think it really did look like originally in that computer image on the far right. Now, <clears throat> getting back to sort of the development of sculpture in the 15th century and other things, this is a sculpture on the left uh, by a Greek sculptor. It's one of the most famous sculptures in the history of Western art. It's by Polyclitus. Uh, it's uh, titled the Doriferous. Doriferous refers to the spear bearer. This guy was originally holding a javelin over his shoulder here. <clears throat> originally, this was a bronze. What you're looking at here is a marble copy after the bronze original. This is today at the Archaeological Museum in Naples. So this is an ancient Greek work from about 450 BC. On the right is a sculpture from the 15th century in Florence. And it's one of the most important sculptures in Western sculptural history. It's by Donatello. It's his statue of St. Mark from about 1411. This is, uh, was commissioned for the uh, building or San Michele, which was a building devoted on the exterior to all of the various trades in Florence, the trade unions, each trade union, you might say, uh, had a niche that they sponsored. And uh, Donatello created St. Mark. And one of the reasons he's in this beautiful kind of drapery is because the, the guild that commissioned this was the uh, Linen Weavers Guild in Florence. So they wanted to see a lot of linen. And that's what you have here. In any case, what's important about the St. Mark by Donatello is that it is in the 15th century in Florence with Donatello that the pose of this classical figure, which we call classical contrapposto, is rediscovered. This is the pose that had been lost for centuries through the Middle Ages. 
It's rediscovered in the sculptures of Donatello, specifically with the St. Mark. And then the history of Florentine and Italian sculpture and European sculpture in general takes this and begins to just develop it even further. So I mentioned to you in the first part of the 15th century in Florence, there's this generation that are among the greatest artists in Western art history, and they certainly set the tone for the rest of the century. In sculpture, it's Donatello, and we would add probably Ghiberti. In architecture, it's Brunelleschi, and in painting, it's Masaccio. That's the core early 15th century generation. Verrocchio inherits everything from these individuals, but most especially from, from Donatello. And he certainly inherits, as did all of his comrades, classical contraposto. So here's what we're talking about. If you go back into the history of Western sculpture, and you go back to the Egyptians, to the Greeks, the early Greeks, the archaic Greeks, figures stand as you see here on the far left. Feet together, one foot maybe slightly advanced of the other, weight evenly distributed between your two legs, shoulders square, frontal, arms by your side. That's an Egyptian example, the pharaoh Mycerinus from the Old Kingdom. That's the Kuros figure I already showed you, that's at the Met uh, in the center. And then I'm showing you the Doriferous by Polyclitus. This is the revolution in classical Greek, the classical Greek period. What Polyclitus and the Greeks discovered in 450 in the fifth century was the natural way we stand as a figure. If you're going to a movie and the line is around the corner and you have to wait in line to get a ticket for an hour, you're not going to stand like this. You're not going to stand with your feet evenly and your legs, you're going to fall over. The way we stand is we put all of our weight on one leg. When we get tired, we shift to the other leg. And that sets in motion a series of checks and balances through the knees, the groin, the shoulders, and the head. This is the naturalism of the human body, the way it stands. And this is discovered, this is invented by the Greeks and rediscovered in the Renaissance in Florence with Donatello. Inherent in contraposto is also another mechanical, shall we say, term, chiastic balance, that normally the relaxed arm is diagonally opposite the relaxed leg, and the weight-bearing arm is diagonally opposite the weight-bearing leg to create this cross, these crossing diagonals, which means you create a center of gravity. Again, that encourages and reinforces the naturalism of the pose. So once contraposto is rediscovered by Donatello, it just catches on. Everybody, this is a major rediscovery. So when you go to the exhibition and look at Verrocchio's David, he stands in perfect classical contraposto, as do all Renaissance sculptures pretty much from this point on. Don't be fooled here by the, the hand that's holding the sword. This is the engaged leg. This is the engaged arm that's moving. This is the relaxed arm, even though it's holding the sword, and the relaxed arm is diagonally opposite the relaxed leg. So we have perfect classical contraposto. This is David with the head of Goliath from 1465. It's in the exhibition. It's loaned to us from the Bargello Museum in Florence. This commission to Verrocchio came from Piero de' Medici. And Piero was, in some ways, emulating his father, Cosimo, 
who had commissioned from Donatello, the other great David in the first part of the century. So Cosimo had commissioned a David from Donatello, and now Cosimo's son, Piero, is commissioning a David from Verrocchio. This, this prevalence of David in Florentine sculpture, Michelangelo's David, everybody does a David, uh, is related specifically to Florence's view of themselves as a David being threatened by all these Goliaths. We're a small republic, and we're constantly threatened by bigger neighbors, the Duchy of Milan, Venice, the Papal States. We're constantly the underdog. And so the reason you see so many Davids in Florentine art, painting, sculpture, is because it was sending a political message to the Florentines and to their enemies. The message it was sending to their enemies is, we may look small and weak, but if you come against us, you're going down. That was the message, essentially. So here David stands over the head of Goliath, which was cast separately. And that leads to another discussion I'm going to mention in a, in a minute. And that is, uh, this is a lost wax cast. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And it was recently restored and cleaned in around 2003, 2004. And at that time, in fact, this sculpture came to the National Gallery. This is not the first visit to America that the David by Verrocchio has made. It's actually, the, as far as I know, it's the second. Maybe there, was, there were more. But it was part of an exhibition that took place in um, 2003-2004. This exhibition opened at the Bargello, then it traveled to Atlanta, to the High Museum, and then it ended here at the National Gallery. And the concept of the exhibition was dealing with what was at that point the restoration of David, the cleaning of David. So the exhibition was Verrocchio's David Restored, a Renaissance bronze from the National Museum of the Bargello. And uh, what was unique about that exhibition, first of all, you got to see the sculpture beautifully cleaned the way we see it now here. But there was another discussion uh, about the sculpture, and that related to the placement of the head in the pedestal. There was evidence that this wasn't the way that Verrocchio intended the sculpture to be seen originally that this is not the original pedestal. And in fact, although this is a historic pedestal, it's too small. And that um, we have evidence that there was a different pedestal. When this work was sold to the city, it was placed in a particular location with a different pedestal and with the head of Goliath, probably not under the feet or under the legs, but like this, to the side. And this is the way the work was exhibited at the Bargello, then at the High Museum, and here at the National Gallery in 2004 to, to discuss in advance and look into this particular placement of the head, which probably is historically accurate for a particular period of time. But then we know the city moved the sculpture again. They put it on a different pedestal. The pedestal is the one we have in the exhibition. That pedestal was smaller. And we think at that point, that's when the head went back, that went under the under the legs the way we see it today, the way you see it in that photograph on the, on the right. So when that exhibition took place here, it, it, well, it was in Florence, then it was in Atlanta, then it was here. This is the way the sculpture was exhibited. But when it returned to Florence, the director of the Bargello, she decided, okay, that was good. We all had a look at that. <laughs> and we had a chance to discuss whether the head went here or there but we're going to put the head back under the legs. And now that is the way it's exhibited, and that's the way we see it here now in 20, 
20 or 2019 at the gallery. But once Donatello rediscovers cant a classical contrapposto, everybody's in contrapposto. So here's our sculpture, an anonymous Florentine 15th century sculpture, Madonna and Child from 1425. This is an early 15th century work. At one point, we thought this was Donatello, but it's, we're no longer convinced of that. But this is a terracotta. It's painted and gilded uh, terracotta. It's virtually life-size. It's in our permanent collection. And this is what we're talking about now. The Virgin Mary standing in beautiful classical contrapposto, this Christ child that's very active and lively. There are elements in this sculpture in terms of the details of the Madonna's cuffs and her drapery that show classical uh, elements and reveal this interest in the classical past, the type of sandal that she wears. So again, there's all this rediscovery of the classical past with contrapposto. Here, in case you needed a better example, this is our sculpture on the right of um, David. That's in our permanent collection. It's a terracotta. It's small. It's only about maybe 16 inches tall. It's, uh, we don't know the sculptor, but we know the sculptor, whoever he or she is, seemed to specialize in statues of David and St. John. So we call this artist the master of David and St. John. Uh, he just cranked out a lot of Davids and St. Johns. But you see the pose here is almost exactly to the Verrocchio and this continuing interest in this beautiful, natural, contrapposto kind of stance. The other aspect, one of the other aspects of Florentine 15th century sculpture, and this was throughout Tuscany, was the prevalence of these uh, reliefs of the Madonna and Child. And uh, we have a wonderful cross-section of these in the gallery. I'm not going to show you all of them. This is by Benedetto da Maiano here on the left. Madonna and Child, there's a detail on the right from 1475. This, these artists, Benedetto, Desiderio, and others, are all the contemporaries of Verrocchio. This was like a, these sculptors all were crossing paths and knew each other. So this is a typical marble relief, the Madonna and Child. These would have very different interactions between the Madonna and the Child, and often there was a deeper symbolism. For example, in this work, you look at Mary, and she, she's not looking at the Christ Child. She's looking down. She looks almost a little bit sad or a little bit somber. The Christ child is looking at us, and he seems to be stepping up with one foot on her hand. And here we may very well have a kind of presagement of the idea of the ultimate death and resurrection of this child. Mary knows from the beginning that her son is destined to be crucified and to die. That's, that's the inherent sadness. He seems to almost already be stepping up out of the tomb almost. And so there could be that kind of element going on here. These were works that were not meant for churches. They were meant for private homes, private devotional um, uh, elements. To that extent, here's another one in our collection by Antonio Rossellino, Madonna and Child, same year, 1475. What I'm showing you on the right, you may have heard my summer talk. I talked about the Cress collection, about Samuel Cress and the great gifts that he gave us. And this is his apartment in New York on the right from 1938. He lived on Fifth Avenue. And uh, almost every work in that, <laughs> in that room is now in the National Gallery. And here is the Rossellino here. Here's our Giotto. 
Here's our Fra Filippo Lippi. Uh, this was his so-called Venetian room in his um, apartment on Fifth Avenue. So here is the way you would have seen it even in the Renaissance. It was meant to be a domestic, uh, con for contemplation and a domestic interior. I, I alluded to glazed terracotta. Another way of talking about that is ceramic. And the family associated with that is the Della Robbia family. And we did a huge exhibition here, 2017, on the Della Robbia. We had everybody, Luca, Andrea, Giovanni, the whole clan. Um, this is a Madonna and child on the left from 1475, glazed terracotta. And uh, the nativity, 1460 on the right. The Della Robbia family are fascinating. They emerge in 15th century Florence and they are become renowned for a new way of creating sculpture, which is this glazed terracotta, uh, essentially ceramic work, to take terracotta, to glaze it, to fire it in a kiln. And then, in fact, they did double firings to create what we would call, they called it a bisque firing. The quality and the heat was so intense that you got this bisque, almost porcelain-like kind of surface. Believe it or not, these sculptures are very durable. They're very, they can take a lot of abuse. They can be outside. They take a lot of weathering and rain. And even today, when you walk the streets of Florence, the sculptures of the Della Robbia are everywhere in the city, on the outside of buildings, over doorways. One of the other things is because they were often this blue and white, they can be seen from a great distance in a rainstorm or whatever. They just jump out at the wall. The renown of the Della Robbia was just immense, and it passed down from generation uh, to generation. And it was wonderful because it was essentially taking humble materials, clay coming from the Arno seabed, and turning it into these wonderful um, sculptures that stressed this kind of humility and Christian faith. These are two works by the founder of the sort of dynasty, Luca della Robbia. Luca doesn't marry, he has no children, but his nephew, Andrea, succeeds him. The thing about these works is how they functioned again. They were certainly often, most often meant to be in homes, in private homes. And they're, they're created in sections, like a puzzle, in different pieces. And you can see, when you look at one, you can see almost the little sort of sectional elements which meant they could, be, they could be created to order. So let's say I wanted one in my house, and I would go to Luca, and I would say, okay, I think I'd like the Christ child, and maybe throw in Mary and Joseph. I might like a, a, a cow, and maybe a couple of cherubs. Uh, and each time I was adding something, I'd be paying more. If I wanted something simpler, okay, I could do that. And so they were actually made to order very often. As you see here, the simplicity on the left in the greater complexity on the right. This is his nephew, um, Andrea della Robbia, on the left. This is one of our best works by Andrea in the collection, The Adoration of the Child from 1477. Andrea carries on his, his uncle's um, uh, technique, creating works of incredible beauty. Again, this is a sectional work. It's in various pieces that are put together. And this is clearly a special order because of the bracket. If you look at this bracket, there are two coats of arms. 
in the central wreath. One coat of arms belongs to the Donati family, that's the dragon. And the other coat of arm is the mitre and the cross, which belongs to the Girolami family. We date this to 1477. And the reason we date it to 1477 is because that's when the marriage of these two families takes place. In other words, in 1477, these two families were joined through marriage and they clearly wanted to commemorate this marriage. They went to Andrea and said, we'd like this, right? And would you please make sure you put our coat of arms here to make sure symbolically you're seeing these two families that are joined together. Now the slide on the right, the image on the right is the image of the study of John Ruskin, the great Victorian critic and writer. Uh, it's a photograph from 1910. It's his study at Brantwood, where he lived and worked. The Della Robbia uh, become famous, and by the 19th century, everybody has heard of them. And in part, it's because of writers about the Della Robbia. Ruskin's case is interesting because initially Ruskin hates this stuff. He thinks it's just vulgar, all this color and stuff. It's just, oh God, it's hideous. Uh, his great rival as a Victorian critic is Walter Pater. Walter Pater loves this stuff. And so Pater is singing the praises of the Della Robbia. Ruskin is sort of not commenting, if, if commenting only to say something negative. But then Ruskin, as he gets older, he seems to, he just changes, and he ends up purchasing this work that we now have at the National Gallery. And here it is over his fireplace. This is our sculpture in his study. And by the end of his life, he referred to this work as, quote, quite one of the most precious things I have, unquote. And then in 1846, he goes off on this sort of hymn to sing the praises of the Della Robbia, especially Luca, and he says, quote, Luca is brightly Tuscan with the dignity of a Greek. He has English simplicity, French grace, Italian devotion, and is, I think, delightful to the truest lovers of art in all nations and all ranks. Now what happened here, because of the promotion by Ruskin, Pater, you had the British going to Italy in the 19th century you all know the Grand Tour, you all know the E.M. Forster stories, Room with a View, et cetera. They're all traipsing around Florence. And in their Baedeker guidebooks, there's all this information about the Della Robbia. And so when they're in Florence, the Brits are buying this stuff in bulk. Um, and today, the largest collections almost of Della Robbia sculpture are in England. And then, of course, in America, because whatever the Brits did, we had to do. So American tourists following the Brits, getting their Baedeker books, their guidebooks, did the same thing. When we did the exhibition here in 2017, it was almost entirely drawn from American collections, uh, with, some, with some exceptions. So that was the promotion of the Della Robbia in the 19th century. Here's Andrea again on the left, Madonna and Child in our collection with Cherubim from 1485. Notice the shape here, it's circular. It's a ta what we call in painting a tondo, a round shape. We have two of the most important uh, Florentine tondo pictures of the National Gallery, the Alba Madonna by Raphael and the Adoration of the Magi by Fra Angelico and Fra Filippo Lippi. But even here in sculpture, there's a circular format speaking to this distinctly Florentine shape. The tondo was distinctly Florentine. 
again, meant for domestic interior. But on the right, we have now the next generation. Luca has no kids. Andrea is his nephew. Andrea has five children. They all become sculptors. And most importantly is Giovanni, and he's represented on the right. This is Giovanni della Robbia's Pietà from 1510. There's something that changes. This is already now into the 16th century, the 1500s. And there's a change. And the change is what has transpired in Florence through the last years of the 19th, of the, uh, excuse me, of the 15th century into the 16th century. And that is this kind of pietistic movement in Florence in which the Florentines were being chastised and they themselves began to think of themselves in this way as be, being too worldly, too materialistic, too concerned with wealth and art and not concerned enough with their soul, with their spirit. This had culminated with Savonarola in Florence in the 1490s. So what you began to see, in, even in the wake of Savonarola into the early 16th century, is the attempt on the part of sculptors like Giovanni della Robbia to create a more humble kind of sculpture. For example, the body here of Jesus and the face of Mary and her hands are not glazed. They're the pure terracotta. So they are the pure earth tone. So he's even speaking in this way about humility, about a more natural and a, and a less or ostentatious and ornate kind of sculpture. If we jump back to Luca, I just wanted to show you again the great visitation that I showed you quickly before from 1445. We have this great Florentine picture on the right by Piero di Cosimo of the visitation with St. Nicholas and St. Anthony Abbott. So the visitation is when Mary and Elizabeth, who are cousins, they meet. They're both pregnant. Mary is pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. But I wanted to show you uh, how even this large Luca della Robbia sculpture would have been fired in a kiln large enough to, to accommodate it, but in fact, it's also in sections. And here they are. So this is the way it gets packed up for ship, shipment in these four parts, and then it was reassembled. Notice the, on the right where the hand is, it's on this part. Then it links up with the part that goes here. It was really unheard of and rare, very rare that the sculpture was allowed to travel for the exhibition here. Um, I doubt if it will ever leave Italy again. Mino da Fiesole is another sculptor in this group of important 15th century Florentines and Tuscans. We have these two sculptures, Charity on the left and Faith on the right from 1475. They're in these niches. We have them displayed in this sort of in the wall. Uh, these were probably sculptures that were meant for a large wall tomb. I'll show you an example in a second. In the middle in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, uh, the images of the virtues were were very common. And faith, hope, and charity are three of the most important. They're the so-called cardinal virtues. So we have charity and faith here. Maybe there was a hope sculpture as well. Faith is identified on the right uh, by attributes that in our sculpture are broken off. She would have been holding a chalice. You can just see part of the stem. And she would have been holding a cross. And that's been broken off as well uh, here. And then faith, I mean charity on the left, 
<clears throat> would always be seen uh, giving succor to a child, nourishment to a child, uh, and that's what you see here. So charity on the left and faith on the on the right. Uh, Mino is a very interesting sculptor. He's he has an interesting way of carving his folds, his drapery is elegant, they're kind of crisp, they're somewhat sharp. They're different than some of the softer work of Desiderio da Settignano. They certainly he doesn't certainly doesn't have the realism of Verrocchio when you look at Verrocchio's work. Uh, in any case, what probably where these sculptures probably resided originally was in some kind of a wall tomb like this one. This is a tomb in Rome on the left. It's in Santi Apostoli in Rome. It's by Andrea Bregno and Mino da Fiesole. They were collaborators. Andrea tended to do the design of the tomb, and Mino did much of the sculpture. So this is the tomb of Cardinal Pietro Riario, who's the nephew of Pope Sixtus IV. And uh, the tomb here was designed by Andrea Bregno, but the sculpture is all by Mino. And you see these kinds of figures here in niches. And that's probably where our figures resided originally in some kind of a wall uh, tomb. This figure I'm very interested in. I just think it's really interesting. This is by Mino, Mino da Fiesole. We show it in this little niche in the, uh, in the gallery. It's referred to as the Virgin Annunciate, uh, the Virgin of the Annunciation. Uh, it dates to 1455. One of the reasons we think it's that, or at least some people think it's that, is because very faintly along the base, there's an inscription that says, Ave Maria Gratia Plena, Hail Mary, full of grace. Those are the words spoken to Mary when the angel Gabriel comes in the Annunciation. So that seems sort of plausible. But there's a lot other, there are a lot of other things going on in this sculpture in terms of the way it looks. Mino da Fiesole is very close to Desiderio da Settignano and another sculptor named Matteo Civatali, who I'll show you in a second. And again, as I said, his, he's different than Verrocchio. It's much less realism. Here's the sculpture a little closer uh, here. And it kind of moves. Oh, I don't know what's going on there. Let's see. OK. And it, um, when you look at it from the front, you think it's maybe fully, fully round. But in fact, it's against the wall. And it's not fully round. It's kind of flat on the, on the back, which I'll show you in a second. And when we look at the, the sculpture around its perimeter, it's very rough. And what appears plausible is that it was cut out from a relief that there was a relief panel that this was part of. And then somebody cut out the sculpture from that relief panel, which might have been rectangular. Now, here's what it looks like in the back. Uh, and here you see how shallow it is, uh, how flat it is in these photographs here. Um, so there are different theories here about what this might represent. It seems to have been a very famous piece because in the format that we see it here in our gallery, it was often copied. So if it had been part of some relief ensemble earlier, that was way, way earlier in its history. And then it was pulled out and then came to be known the way we see it today. Mino seems to have worked at some point in Siena. 
One theory about this sculpture is that it represents Catherine of Siena and not the Virgin Mary. And that seems to have been pretty well jettisoned because we never see Catherine in anything but her, her garb as a Dominican nun. She's never just wearing regular sort of clothes. So that doesn't seem relevant here. But one theory is that perhaps this isn't the Virgin Annunciate. It's not the Virgin of the Annunciation, but it's the, the Madonna Adolorata, or the Sourful Madonna, who is sourful and would have been in some kind of a plaque in which the other figure would have been Christ as the Man of Sorrows. And that leads us to look at something like this. This is, uh, these are two works that, that go together, and they're by a sculptor who's exactly working in Florence at this time. He's friends with all of these people, with Mino, etc. For years, he was referred to just anonymously as the master of the marble Madonnas. There was enough work by this individual to put it together to know that that's a distinct personality. And then later it was decided, one scholar came up with the attribution that this is the work of a particular man, Gregorio di Lorenzo. And he did seem to specialize in these kinds of sort of ensembles in which you had the sorrowful Madonna with Christ as the man of sorrows. So that led people, that has led people to believe that maybe our figure was something like this. And then it was cut out. The shape and the way it would have turned from the wall, it, it could be, again, very persuasive. But we're, we're not sure. This is all. I'm just presenting you here the theories. What is clear, as I said, is that this sculpture was so famous in the present way it looks that that's how most people knew it. And so there are copies of this sculpture everywhere. Uh, they're not by Mino. They're after Mino. And this is the one on, in the Louvre on the left. It's... Um, the Virgin Mary after Mino da Fiesole. And then, and this is stucco, it's plaster, painted plaster. And the one on the right is painted plaster, same thing, but it's uh, in the Met today in New York City. We have these young, these sculptures of young children from this period. Antonio Rossellino on the left, the young St. John the Baptist from 1470. And Desiderio da Settignano on the right, the Christ child from 1460. We say Christ child with a question mark on the right. There's no question we're looking at John the Baptist on the left because he wears this hair shirt. Whether this is the young Jesus or whether it was just a young Florentine boy, there are different ways of approaching this. Uh, Antonio Rossellino and his brother Bernardo were one of the major sort of tandems of sculptors at this period. They relate to Verrocchio, they relate to Desiderio da Settignano. Rossellino wasn't their actual real name, it was their nickname, it means little redhead in Italian. Uh, in any case, they produce, uh, Antonio produces this bust of John the Baptist as a young boy, and we actually think it went together with our bust on the right of Des by Desiderio of uh, the Christ child. Now, one of the things in Florence in the 15th century that became really popular were these portrayals of children, young boys, mainly young boys, but also young girls sometimes, but young boys. And they were very often seen as the young Baptist and the young Jesus. I just mentioned to you that they, these two go all the way back to the womb 
when Elizabeth visits Mary, so they grow up kind of together. And in Florence, there were a number of theologians who spoke to this, the importance of looking at these figures as children. And they spoke to it specifically to parents, Florentine parents, who should use these images of the young Baptist and the young Jesus in child rearing. In other words, these were works probably meant for the interior of a Florentine house. And they were meant to be used as almost didactic or moralistic teaching tools by parents to raise their children. In other words, when your child misbehaves, you say, why can't you be more like John the Baptist? Uh, why can't you be more like the young Jesus? They didn't get into trouble. Uh, and there, was, there were sermons on this particular theme. So this is particularly Florentine in the 15th century. But with these two works, there's one other aspect. And that is we know at some point, perhaps as early as 1756, these two works were installed in an oratory in Florence uh, over doorways opposite each other. Their backs were shaved a bit to be pressed more against the wall. And holes were drilled in the tops of the heads. And what we think here is clearly these were meant to then be the Baptist and Jesus. The holes in the heads were to hold metal halos. And they were meant to be seen as a kind of, uh, a kind of pair. So that seems to be, that clearly seems to cinch the idea that the child on the right was a portrayal of Jesus, although he could have begun as a Florentine child, and then they just turned him into Jesus. So that's even that. Here's a work that we had in the great Della Robbia show. This is not in our collection, but I wanted to show it to you. This is the bust of a boy from the Bargello from 1475. It's one of his most beautiful works. And then this is our little boy on the right by Desiderio da Settignano. This importance of children in Florentine art of the 15th century and sculpture. Here's the Giuliano. We looked at Lorenzo de' Medici, and in the exhibition, Lorenzo is paired with his brother, Giuliano. This is terracotta, left pretty much raw. It does have some traces of polychrome. Very different than the Lorenzo that we were talking about, which is he's very serious and gruff. And This is probably depicting Giuliano. Remember, Giuliano is killed. He's assassinated in 1478. This probably dates to 1475, three years earlier. And this probably dates, we think, because of the decorative ornate armor to what would have been in 1475, Giuliano's coming of age. In Florence, when you were considered an adult, there was a kind of a tournament and a coming of age party. And uh, this is probably when this was uh, conceived. It's tragic. Three years from this moment, this kid would be dead. Uh, he would be assassinated brutally uh, in, the, in Florentine Cathedral. Here he's looking to the future, everything. He's got everything to look forward to, but he wears this most incredibly ornate, gorgeous breastplate that has this escutcheon of this head. People refer to these things sometimes as medusas, uh, as various things. I call this kind of a head with the wing of fury. And this is very typical of these breastplates where you would have this fury which was literally meant to scare your opponent, even here if it was in a joust and not in battle. Uh, and it was meant very often to contrast with the calmness, the, plac the placidity and the sort of control of the figure himself. 
that he has this calm aspect, but the fury represents another potential sort of uh, way of being. So this is a, a beautiful work. This is pretty much given to Verrocchio, not sort of the, the distance that we have with the Lorenzo. And with these breastplates, I just show you here the importance of this kind of em emblem in Florence. This is the Andrea again on the upper left. We looked at the uh, Alexander the Great, which wears a similar kind of breastplate with this really ferocious kind of fury. And then a work that is not by a Florentine, but it's in our collection. It's by a Bolognese artist, Vincenzo Onofri, this man in armor from 1500. There is a reason for these breastplates and this kind of imagery beyond just a temperamental kind of thing. This kind of armor that's freely translated, it's based in some ways on antique models, but then it's just pure fantasy. The sculptor is just creating this kind of fantasy. But it's meant to really freely translate the idea in Florence and in Italy of what was called in Italian the Uomo Famoso, of the famous man. And in more specific terms, in terms of a Latin concept of exemplae virtutis, that these things exemplify, these men exemplify virtue. And they are conquerors or condottieri or commanders or people of great power. So the armor sort of is meant to reinforce that. Here's the Verrocchio, or at least the Verrocchio and assistant on the left. And there is Leonardo on the right. Leonardo comes out of the Verrocchio workshop. Our exhibition spends a fair amount of time on the students who came out of Verrocchio's workshop. And of course, he's one of the great teachers. Leonardo is obviously his most famous student. Botticelli, Ghirlandaio, Perugino, they all spend time in Verrocchio's workshop. So this is Leonardo's Darius, or Darius, warrior in profile from 1475. It's a silver point drawing that's in the British Museum in London. This kind of, we know the plaque on the left, the relief on the left, might be based on two metal casts of reliefs that Verrocchio did for the King of Hungary. Those are lost to us. So this marble might be based on one of those metal uh, reliefs that are lost to us. But this would have been the perfect exercise for a student to show him the relief and say, draw this relief. So the young Leonardo, as a student, would be trying his hand at uh, a free interpretation of the work on the left. This is another bust by Mino da Fiesole, another one of these important individuals. This is Astorgio Manfredi from 1455. He was a condottieri. Condottieri are soldiers of fortune, mercenaries, and they would fight for whoever paid them the most. He wears this very richly embossed breastplate. It's not as fancy as the um, Giuliano. He's a well-known, bigger-than-life military leader. He was the governor of Faenza in 1455. So this is showing his strength again and kind of connecting him to these great leaders from the antique. There is, when you flip this bust over on the right, there's an inscription. And it's in Latin, but it reads in English, uh, Estorgio il Manfredi, Lord of Faenza, in the 42nd year of his age, 1455, the work of Nino, N-I-N-O. 
not Mino, <laughs> M-I-N-O. So here we're not sure what's happening here. Maybe the guy just got it wrong. This is a work by Mino da Fiesle. We don't have any record of Mino being referred to as Nino. And so this is a little mystery as to why it says Nino and not Mino da Fiesle. We have so many sculptures that depict and illustrate so much of the importance and beauty of 15th century Tuscan sculpture. This is a Madonna and Child from 1425. It's Florentine, 15th century. The reason this is so great today to look at in part is because this is one of the best preserved examples of 15th century gilded and polychrome sculpture where you can still see almost all the original gilding and the polychrome. This Christ child is very um, active and robust. And this sculptor, whoever the sculptor is, probably was thinking certainly about Donatello again. This is painted and gilded terracotta, and then it's placed onto this wooden backing that you can see uh, on the right. Here's a sculpture that we have in our permanent collection on the far left. This is not in the Verrocchio show. The other two are, and I just want to illustrate something here. The sculpture on the far left of this woman, it's called a lady from probably 1475. We uh, give this to the circle of Andrea del Verrocchio. You have all these terms, the studio of, the workshop of, the circle of. Here, when you look at this sculpture, compare it to these two, but especially to this one, which is true Verrocchio. This is from the Frick collection in the exhibition. I think you see, you don't have to be a connoisseur here uh, to see the difference in quality, right? So this term, circle of Andrea del Verrocchio, I mean, circle could mean like maybe they had a drink one night. Uh, and uh, there wasn't that much inter interaction between the two. In any case, the work from the Frick, which is a bust of a young woman from 1470, is stupendous when you see the exhibition. The carving is just beautiful. And then we have, equally, if not more importantly, the, the bust on the right by Verrocchio. This is the lady with flowers from 1475. Now, the portrait on the right is among Verrocchio's most important sculptures. It is considered the first freestanding marble bust of, of a half-length figure, not going down just to this element, but going down further. That shows the arms and the hands. So this is another kind of strategic moment in the development of 15th century Florentine sculpture. There is some belief that this might be a portrait, the lady on the far right, of Lucrezia Donati, who seems to have been the sort of uh, one of the platonic loves of Lorenzo de' Medici. It was very important in the Renaissance in Florence to have these platonic relationships where men celebrated women and women, but it was a strictly platonic thing, sending poetry and sonnets to each other. This is true with of our Ginevra de Benci. It's probably true here. And we show you, and we have on the wall in the exhibition, a poem, a sonnet that Lorenzo de' Medici wrote around this time that we think might relate actually to this sculpture. But more importantly is the relationship that this sculpture on the far right by Verrocchio has to our painting by Leonardo of Ginevra de' Benci. So here is Ginevra on the far left. She's in the exhibition. 
This is one of the early works of Leonardo da Vinci, probably painted while he was still in the studio of Verrocchio. Uh, Ginevra da Benci from 1474. That's the front of the painting on the left. And then this is the back of the painting, which is also painted, but not in oil. The back is in tempera. And we have this portrayal of a, of a, a wreath of laurel and palm and juniper, a little sprig of juniper in the center, with this banderole that's inscribed in Latin, Vertutum formo, forma decorat, beauty adorns virtue, singing the attributes of Ginevra. Now, we know at some point, and you probably already know all this, uh, our picture was cut down. At some point in its history, it was not a square, it was a rectangle. But at some point, some date, and we're not sure, it, it lost the good chunk of the bottom, which turned the painting from a rectangle into a square. So in trying to recreate what the painting might have looked like before it, was, it lost this lower part, the detective work involved looking at two works most specifically. First of all, the Verrocchio uh, sculpture of the lady with the flower. This is a work that no doubt Leonardo knew. He was painting Ginevra when this was in the studio of Verrocchio. And then you kind of work the problem from the other side. This is a drawing by Leonardo of hands. And, and then you start to think, well, maybe this is relating to our picture as well. Maybe we're looking here at a conflation of what Ginevra originally looked like. And when we kind of played with this idea, what we came up with is what we think Ginevra probably looked like originally. And here she is in the middle. She probably was a rectangle and her hands and arms were shown much like in the Verrocchio. This probably or very well could be a study by Leonardo for part of the Ginevra with a little flower here, which is here. This painting was not only cut on the bottom, but a strip was cut along the side uh, as well. So that was all lost. So if our reconstruction is correct in the center there, Leonardo's portrait of Ginevra would have broken with the Italian Renaissance tradition of depicting women as bust-length figures and in profile, as I'm showing you on the right. This is a painting we have in our collection by an artist named Ercole de Roberti. It happens to be another woman named Ginevra, Ginevra Bentivoglio from 1474. It's exactly the same date as the Ginevra de Benci. And that was the tradition in Florence, profile, bust-length. And Ginevra da Benci probably broke with that tradition. So it was, again, a revolutionary, probably, painting. We have Matteo Civatali here, St. Sebastian. And he's actually a Lucchese artist from Lucca, but in Tuscany. And then a very important sculptor, Jacopo della Quercia on the right, who is from Siena, the Madonna of Humility. Civatali is important. He worked mainly in Lucca. And he worked in, for important commissions in various cathedrals and churches. The St. Sebastian statue is probably a small version of a very important marble sculpture of St. Sebastian, a larger version that he did for a very important chapel in the church of the Cathedral of San Martino in Lucca. There is a relic in Lucca called the Volto Santo, the Holy Face. And uh, it's so important that uh, Matteo was commissioned to build a chapel within the cathedral around this relic. 
and that's where his original St. Sebastian resided, but as a large-scale marble. And so this is probably a small sort of interpretation. This is not marble. It's painted terracotta from 1492. But notice something. This is St. Sebastian. You know, he's tied to a tree. He's used as target practice. He's filled with arrows. But notice, even when he's tied to a tree, he stands in beautiful classical contraposto. So even here, contraposto sort of rules the day. Um, Luca, I mean, Jacopo della Quercia is particularly important. Uh, he's the most important sculptor working in this period from Siena. He'll have an impact. He's older than Donatello, and he's older than, certainly than Michelangelo, but he'll have a huge impact on Donatello, but also on the young Michelangelo. Uh, this is the Madonna of Humility. This is small. It's not a big sculpture, but its sense of monumentality, its robustness, is very much something that catches the eye of Michelangelo, the idea of how even in a small sculpture he can create this really robust, strong figure. These kinds of smaller sculptures, these are both small, again, were probably made for devotion in private homes and maybe convents, but they were not meant for large sort of churches or cathedrals. The, the Della Quercia, the Jacobo Della Quercia, also has indications of polychrome and gilding as well. There's one thing to mention about Jacopo della Quercia. It's a sort of a parenthetical side sort of view here of, of things. But in Florence, one of the biggest commissions that opens up the 15th century is the commission for the great uh, bronze doors of the baptistry. Today, there are three sets of doors. The first is Andrea Pisano. The, then the first in the Renaissance from 1401 was Lorenzo Ghiberti. Then he does a second, the so-called Gates of Paradise. But for the first sets of doors in 1401, the Florentines are very, they like competitions. So they held a competition for who would be given this commission. And we know that there were seven finalists, though they were semi-finalists for, for the doors. And one of the semi-finalists was Jacobo de la Quercia. Another semi-finalist was Brunelleschi. And another semifinalist was, of course, Ghiberti. From the seven, the committee weaned it down to two finalists. The two finalists were Brunelleschi and Ghiberti, each of whom submitted a plaque that today you can see at the Bargello. That was their competition panel. Now, as you know, that set of doors, the so-called North Doors, we call them today, that commission went to Ghiberti. And that occupied him from 1401 to basically 1424. When he finished that, the city was so happy with those doors that then they just outright awarded him the commission for the new doors, the so-called gates of paradise, as Michelangelo called them later. Okay, But what's important here is who lost the competition. I'm always telling my students, sometimes it's not so important to win the competition to win the fellowship. Sometimes it's important. Things happen if you lose. In that competition, Brunelleschi and Ghiberti were the final competitors. Brunelleschi lost, right? And for the history of architecture, <laughs> that was important. Because Brunelleschi was then, look at, OK, I lost this competition. I'm giving up on sculpture. I'm just going to be concerned with architecture. And he becomes the greatest architect of the 15th century, right? Jacobo della Quercia lost. 
the competition. He didn't even make it to the final two. And what that does for Jacobo de la Quercia is he decides, okay, I'm going to just become an itinerant sculptor. I'm going to move wherever there is work, which means I'm going to work in Siena or Rome or Bologna, wherever. And what Jacobo de la Quercia does as a result of losing that competition is to spread this new idea of Florentine Tuscan sculpture throughout Italy. The fact that he lost and decides, I'm going to just move around now, was very significant for the history of sculpture in 15th century Italy. So sometimes losing is a blessing in disguise. Here's the Jacopo Sansovino work, Madonna and Child. This is actually material we haven't seen yet, believe it or not. This is paper mache uh, with some stucco. It's from 1550. It probably relates to the sculpture on the right, which is not at the National Gallery. This is in Vicenza. It's a terracotta of the Madonna and Child. Jacopo Sansovino is Florentine. He takes the name Sansovino from one of his uh, uh, teachers. There's no relation. Uh, in any case, he's, he specializes in these uh, paper mache reliefs of the Madonna and Child. And in Italian, we call the, the material here carta pesta, carta pesta, paper mache. This is one of his most famous on the left here. So carta pesta is made by grinding up paper, macerated paper, and some cloth, some water, and some glue. And you, you make this kind of mixture. You press it into molds. You press it into molds. And then you pull it out of the mold and you attach it to a wooden backing. So that's what, we're, that's, what we have, that's what we have here. Now, the reason the work on the right is on the screen is because this is Jacopo Sansovino's terracotta of the Madonna and Child. This probably was the model for the numerous interpretations of this subject by Jacobo. He does more than one version of this, and he's probably always looking back and taking as his model the sculpture on the right, which recently was restored and had been in very bad condition, as you see here. The Vicenza Madonna and Child was broken into a number of fragments, it had been reassembled. It had gone through some horrible, atrocious attempts at restoration. And it was finally decided in 2014, let's, listen, let's take this thing apart. Let's really look at it. What went together? How did it go together? And let's try to bring it back to life the way that it would have been originally. And this took three years of restoration. It took place in Florence between 2014 and 2017. They exposed each piece to an x-ray and to a CAT scan. They were able to see how originally it was supposed to go back together. They ended up with 20 pieces that they thought were the actual original pieces. And here it was being restored here. So this is the restoration in progress during that period. This relates directly to our sculpture in the National Gallery. And I mentioned this issue of facture to you when we talked about Lorenzo. There's another article, and it's about this sculpture. And it's by Judy Ozone, one of our conservators. And it deals specifically with the um, Carta Pesta relief of Jacopo Sansovino. So if you want to look that up, I would encourage you to get that issue of Facture. Finally, you'll be happy to know. Um, I'm closing with simply this. 2019 marks the 500th anniversary of the death of Leonardo da Vinci. He dies in 1519. 
Um, we have in 1520, the death of Raphael. With the death of Leonardo in 1519, the death of Raphael in 1520, at least in Italy, most art historians see this as sort of ending the high Renaissance. Michelangelo, remember he's a carver, <laughs> he lives until 1564. And he ends up sort of turning his back on the high Renaissance. But that's another story. In any case, the exhibition that we currently have on Verrocchio is a smaller version of what opened in Florence. And that exhibition was meant to a large extent to also celebrate Leonardo. So the exhibition that we have opened in Florence at the Palazzo Strozzi, which you see on the right and here on the left, it opened there and it also had another venue. Part of the show was at the Palazzo Strozzi and part was at the Bargello which is the sculpture museum where the David is housed and all of that. So you had to go to two venues in Florence. So the show ran in Florence from March 9th until July 14th, and then it came here in a much reduced version. The show had a whole different title in Italy. In Italy. And there you see the banner. It was Verrocchio il Maestro di Leonardo, Verrocchio the Teacher of Leonardo. That was really what was emphasized in the exhibition uh, in Italy. Here's the way it looked in the first room if you went to the Palazzo Strozzi on the left, emphasizing again this relate. They wanted to celebrate both Verrocchio and Leonardo. And then, much like the Tintoretto show, if you heard our talks about Tintoretto, when the Tintoretto show was in Venice, it was exactly a similar thing. You ended the show in Venice going to the various locations, but then you were given a map to go out through the city of Venice to find all the other Tintorettos that were in situ. And that was similar to what you see on the right in Florence. There were still many works by these artists who were, that were housed in their original locations. Here's our show, a reduced version. There were over 150 works in Florence. We have, I think, about 50 in our show. And the first room shows this great Verrocchio David with our figures of Giuliano and Lorenzo. One of the things that happened in our exhibition is what you see on the right. We have Ginevra. Florence didn't have Ginevra, and we didn't send Ginevra. She doesn't travel. Um, so we have Ginevra. But what we decided to do was the conservators and designers and curators decided was to reframe Ginevra. So she's in a new frame compared to what you used to see. And she's in a new situation. She's on a pedestal with a vitrine instead of the way she was always seen, which is this way on the left. This is the old installation on the left. She was in a baffle. You could still see the front and back. She was in a period frame. That was probably a 16th century Venetian frame. But we reframed her and reinstalled her. And we, from what I understand from talking to the curators and others, we're going to keep her in the new, on the pedestal in the vitrine when the show closes. And we return her to her, her appropriate uh, gallery. I know I kept you very long. Um, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the exhibition if you haven't seen it already. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.